0: There's beauty in the different phases of harvest. Uh, this, these are my photographs from around Croxley and, and that part of the world mostly. Uh, looking after a couple of dogs as we were for a little while. Uh, all the different things that we find and see. This is from my uh, next door to my parents where they live. My dad lives now down in Kent. These are corn fields, uh, walking through them. It's, it's beautiful To be able to, do, to do that and see that up close. And the harvest all around us, the different kinds of oats and wheat and barley. Oh, and then uh, the fruit from our own garden of different kinds. Penny's wheelbarrow there, full of things that she's grown. Uh, How many pots do we have currently in the garden? Um, uh, Reducing (laughs) the pots. I gave loads away. I I thought we had... I thought we had. I thought we had quite a lot of pots until we were watching Gardener's World. Uh, was it two days ago? And there was a feature there of a lady who has seven hundred pot plants in her garden. And I thought, no, we don't have very many at all. Those are the girls. So, uh, and because Penny's gift as a gardener comes from her mother and her father, this is part of her father's garden back in the day. That's an enormous area of his garden, given over to potatoes and rhubarb and beans and all kinds of things. I mean, that chap knows how to grow vegetables and fruit, I can tell you, and we benefited uh, from that. When I was um, in my early 20s, I spent some time working on farms down in Kent, and this was one I worked on, which was a fruit farm, and this was the best job I ever had, ever, ever had, which was driving a tractor during, j- during the uh, fruit harvest. So my job was to, uh, on the back of the tractor, they had really big boxes, not actually those, which are the trailers, but they had big boxes, probably about this square, and they fit onto some forks on the back of the tractor, and my job, was to uh, lift up the box on the forks, drive, drive about 100 feet, stop the tractor, and let down the forks with the box, and then sit there for 20 minutes while all the fruit pickers picked all the apples and put them in the box. And then I would raise the forks and drive forward 100 feet and put it down and then sit there on the tractor in the sunshine and read a book that I had in my backpack while they picked all the fruit. I loved that job. That was a fantastic job. And... And so eventually we had enough to put in a trailer, and then I used to tow those into the yard where they were put into, I don't know where they went from there to, uh, to, the, to market or, or whatever. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and I joined being connected uh, in that way. And we need help to have a good harvest. Uh, thank you, Raf. Uh, That's a photo of when he was uh, helping to water our plants while we were away on holiday one time. Uh, and we need help, like Joe needs a lot of help on his uh, allotment So it's not a solo endeavor. We're going to be talking about harvest, happy harvest today. And we're going to be looking at some passages of scripture that are probably quite unfamiliar to many of us. And we're going to start here and someone's going to come and read for us. Who is it today? Yeah. Do you want to come up then, please? If you would, if you'd like to, please turn in the, your Bible to Leviticus chapter 23. And we're going to, those are some excerpts from what's going to be read uh, here now. So maybe about then. Thank you.
1: The Lord says to Moses, say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do not, do no regular work. For seven days present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present, and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a closing special assembly. Do no regular work. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing food offerings to the Lord. The burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings required for each day. These offerings are in addition to those for the Lord's sabbaths, and in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed, and all the free (coughs) will offerings you give to the Lord. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, Celebrate the festival of the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord, your God, for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month.
0: Okay, thank you very much. I'm guessing that not many of us have read that passage before, or if we have, haven't particularly thought about what it means. So we're going to look at that, and then we're going to look at some things to do with Jesus that's connected with this amazing time in the life of the Israelites as they, um, as they celebrated what God called them to celebrate. celebrate. So this is the festival of what's called the Sukkot. And it is a time when a special time in the Israelite year when they were called to come together and celebrate at a a very important time of the year in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. And as you may know, seven is a number of perfection or divinity. And so the, the seventh month was a particularly holy month in the Jewish year. And they had not one, not two, but three festivals in that one month. The first was the festival of trumpets. The second was the atonement. And the third was this one that was just read from Leviticus 23, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of the Trumpets, or the the Festival of the Trumpets, was um, when, strangely enough, trumpets were blown. Uh, Not little things, but these long ones. Some of you might have seen that kind of trumpet at the, uh, the Queen's funeral and around that, right? Those really long trumpets blown standing at the top corner of the temple so the whole of Jerusalem would hear those trumpets and that's in a different way a bit like perhaps an air siren going off somewhere really loud where the whole town would hear it so these trumpets were blown and it was a festival and it was a festival to say whatever's been going on this year now we're in the seventh month now we have this month of festivals now is a time for all Israelites to sit up pay attention and get ready for the atonement and for the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's what that was all about. Then later on that month, you have the Feast of Atonement. And that's about God forgiving and giving, uh, giving uh, Israel assurance of their right status with him. And after that, we have Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths or, or Ingathering, which is, for Jewish people, their harvest festival. Harvest festivals are nothing new. They've been going on for thousands of years. And the purpose of this festival was to remind the people of God that God is with them, to remember God's goodness to them, and to very deliberately, and it was a command, to rejoice. Thou shalt rejoice. You will rejoice. I command you to rejoice. I don't know about you, but sometimes I actually need a reminder to rejoice. Because I don't always feel like rejoicing. There's stuff, isn't there, going on in our lives and around us. But God says, now and again, I need you to get together, and I need you, and you need to rejoice. And this festival was the pinnacle rejoicing festival for Jewish people in the whole year. All the other festivals were great, but this was the one they looked forward to the most. It's like, let's get through the year, and as we can get through to the Feast of Tabernacles, then we're going to be in a good spot. It's all going to be good when we get there. And so the, the instructions to the Israelites which we read earlier, it was for uh, this festival, which lasted eight days. It's uh, um, from, in fact, today is the last day of this feast in the Jewish calendar this year. So actually, it's been the last eight days Jewish people have been doing what we're talking about. Today's the last day, the last and greatest day of the feast, which we'll talk about with Jesus in a moment. And so what Jewish people have been doing for the last eight days, they have been living in temporary shelters. They've been living in booths, uh, at which will look something like that. And that's what they did in the old uh, old covenant, old days. And it is still what, um, what uh, faithful, if you like, Jewish people do today. Uh, in this country, um, their shelters um, are often kept in a garage during the year and then brought out at this time of the year and put up. Originally, they would have made them themselves, perhaps in a garden, like you can see there. But in the first century, more likely, either on the roof of their building, because in in Israel the, the, often they're flat roofs, so you might build it on the roof, or you might go outside the city and build it somewhere nearby, uh, like that. And it's a temporary shelter. Uh, it's made of branches, and the branches have to be laid across the top with gaps in. So if it rains. You are going to get a bit wet. The gaps are meant to be there because you're meant to see the stars. That's part of the point. And they are not particularly warm at this time of year. So it's quite common for Jewish people in this country to take this last week as a holiday in Israel. And they'll go to Israel and do Sukkot there because the weather there is rather better than here. And they can also celebrate with extended family a lot of the time. No work is permitted on day one and day eight of Sukkot. And they are commanded, particularly towards the end here, on this day, to celebrate with joy. And it was one of the three, there were many festivals, but it was one of the three main festivals, which meant that all Israelite men must travel to Jerusalem for this festival. There were others they had to come to. And the family and the women could come, but the men were all meant to come. So it was quite a male thing. You'd have Jerusalem uh, filled with all these blokes who come there to, to live in these shelters, and on that eighth day, to celebrate. And the way they celebrated was, uh, particularly on that last night, going into the last day, they would uh, sing, they would dance, and they would read Deuteronomy. That was their idea. I'm having a good time. <laughs> let's get all the blokes together. And so you'd read a bit of Deuteronomy and you'd be reading it together with your mates there. And you'd be talking about it you think, right, that's enough reading. Let's get up and dance for a while. So the blokes dance for a bit. They're dancing around. Right, that's enough of that. Let's do some rejoicing. Excellent. We'll pray. We'll sing. Now let's read a bit more Deuteronomy. Excellent. Let's talk about that. Ah, oh, that's enough of that. Let's get up and dance a bit more. This goes on all night. All night. It's quite something. I'd really love to see it sometime. And this is, what, this is what happens. Let me ask you a question. This seems in some ways so beyond our, our experience or our understanding or our way of thinking. Why do you think God wanted them to do this? What do you think? Why would God want his people to live in a temporary shelter, not rainproof, um, if it's windy, you're going to get jolly cold. You're supposed to live out there for the whole week. You're not meant to stay out there for a, a little while for have a bite to eat and then go back into your home. You're supposed to sleep out there, eat out there, cook your meals out there, do everything you need to outside for, for eight days. Why do you think God might ask them to do that? What benef- benefit could there be for God's people? What do you think? What's going on here? What's God up to? Must have a good reason. Stephen. Could you a of when in the mm-hmm. Okay. <coughs> a reminder of the desert wanderings, of coming out of Egypt. Yeah, it's a reminder. Any other reasons, Barry? Turn your phone off, uh, turn off the internet, off your devices. And narrow down your focus onto what's really important. <laughs> if you're not in your home, you haven't got all those other things in your home to be concerned about. You're just in this little shelter. It, it's like going camping in a way. It simplifies life, doesn't it? Very good point. Io, did you have something? I think God doesn't want to Where they come from. Where did it come from? I want to be All right. He brought them out of Egypt. He took them to the promised land. He's the reason they're there. He wants them to remember that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Other thoughts? Simon? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're in a little tent kind of thing for a whole week, that's going to either be a delightful time for bonding as a family (laughs) or possibly reveal a few things. But it is. It is intended, I'm sure, to be a bonding thing. You're quite right. Uh, Yes, Kate? Connecting to God and to nature, right? The basics of what God has made. The things that we often take for granted. Mm. I'm sure it does that. Obedience and preparation. Obedience and preparation. We need that, don't we? We need those times to deliberately prepare. Encountering God. Mm. Any other thoughts? It's
1: Sense
0: of gratitude for the simple things in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Gratitude for the simple things of life, which are the main things in the end, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Patricia, drawing close to God again. When we strip other things away, perhaps God becomes more immediate to us. He becomes more. We become more aware of His presence that is already there. But it helps us to be aware. I'm just thinking of the to And I think that all of that Absolutely right. Yeah. There's a lot going on here, I think, actually. I think there's quite a lot going on. And I think the key things, as we've already mentioned, are that firstly, it was a reminder that God had saved his people. They came out of Egypt with nothing. I mean, the stuff they could carry, right? But when they came out of Egypt with basically nothing, they had to live in these temporary shelters. And it's a reminder that it was God who rescued them from slavery. And this festival became particularly important to Israel after the exile. So you have the Exodus. They live in the Promised Land. And then, because of disobedience, they are invaded by the Babylonians who take God's people away. About 70 years, they came back to the land by God's grace and mercy. And they loved this. This festival became even more important to the Israelites from that time on. Because they'd had a double dose of grace. They'd had the rescue from Egypt. Then they'd had the return from exile. They were like, we didn't even ever dare hope that God would still care about us. But my goodness, we're still here. And they celebrated even more. And in a way, that's a little bit symbolic, perhaps for some of us who feel like we've drifted far from God. And maybe we feel like sometimes we've committed sins that take us too far from God. We can't get back. But there's always that possibility, always that potential, and always God's desire that, yes, yes, there is still more grace. And they celebrate uh, as a result. It's also a reminder that God fed their people, fed his people in the desert, the water from the rock, the manna from heaven, the quail, and all that kind of thing. And it's a reminder that God, while his people were tabernacling in the desert in these little tents things, these shelters. God was tabernacling with his people. Remember they had the the main God's tabernacle where God's presence was with them as they went through the desert. It's a reminder that God was with them all through this. So it's a reminder that God is still with them with what they're going through now. And we need that reminder. God is still with us going through what we're going through. He's not distant. He's with us, even more so for us as Christians, because Christ has shared our humanity. He's inhabited it. He's experienced it. He knows exactly what it's like to live on this earth. So it's a good reminder and helpful for us. And there's good reasons there to to celebrate. So let's think about Jesus and how this connects with uh, these things uh, in just a moment here. As we go to John 7. So in a way, all these pilgrims went to Jerusalem right every year. And they went to that festival to celebrate. Great expense, time, efforts involved. Not exactly the same, but there are some, some parallels perhaps for us uh, here today, in that we have all to, to get here today, to uh, appear here to sit on these chairs. Uh, we've all pilgrimed here today. We've gone away from, taken time away from our, our home or other people. We've uh, spent time to come here. And actually, uh, more and more, looking at the price of petrol, uh, we spent uh, more money, even uh, perhaps driving here, apart from those of us who walked. Uh, are lucky enough, like, like the Makinson family, uh, to walk here. Uh, but we've, we've made sacrifices to be here. Why do we come? Why are we here? What might God want us to take away? What might God want us to think about when we leave? You know, when those pilgrims left the the festival and traveled home. Some of them would be traveling for a day or two, but some might have to travel for maybe two weeks. What were they talking about? What did they see at the festival? What did they learn? What what were they reminded of as they went home? And it should be like that for us, that as we leave here today, we're going home, talking about in the car, walking along the road. What what do we see of God today? It's good to see old friends, Like, I own Tyler, Fantastic. It's good to see each other. And I've missed all of you the last two weeks. I was in Thames Valley last week and had COVID the week before and, and all that. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's more than just the human. It's something else. It's what has God, what does God want us to take away? So let's think about Jesus here. Now, this is in John 7. And Jesus, it says, is there on the last and greatest day of the feast. And the feast in the context in John 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is actually what's going on. And I find it rather interesting to reflect on the fact that Jesus himself must have done all of this. Lived in a little booth for a week, for eight days, and done all that kind of stuff. It's been very interesting. I'd like to have a chat with him about what his experience was of that, what he took away from it. But he's at this festival in Jerusalem at the temple. In fact, he's in the precincts there. And it's there that he stands up and says at this festival, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by that he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not yet been given. Jesus had not yet been glorified. So why is he talk about water in this, in this festival time? You, the reason is this, that in the original festival, we read earlier in Leviticus 23, there were things to do like live in the booths and rejoice and all that. But after the exile, the, uh, the rabbis uh, added two extra things to the festival and one of them was to do with water, and the other was to do with light, and we're not going to talk about the light one today, though you'll remember that Jesus said, I am the light of the world, that's in John 8, and that's also at this festival, and for that light, they used to put uh, huge candelabras on huge pillars, so these pillars were, I don't know how tall, but they were in the temple precincts, and they were so tall that you could see them from all around Jerusalem, and these were enormous candelabra, uh, uh, more like a um, more like a fire pit, I'd put it that way, like an enormous fire pit on a pillar. And it was said to be so bright that you could light up the whole of Jerusalem from all of these, uh, these fire pits on pillars in the temple. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he's referring to this light that goes out from God's temple to God's people to the world. That's what he's talking about. But anyway, we're not looking at that today. We're talking about the other thing they added, which was this, that the priest, a priest would go down to the pool of Siloam. Now the pool of Siloam, and I will show you, this bit of video I took in 2018 when Penny and I were lucky enough to be in Jerusalem. And this is at the, uh, the, uh, the Pool of Siloam today, which has been excavated. You can't see much of a pool now. There's not much of an area of water. But this is where the water was. The Pool of Siloam was the original water, main water source for Jerusalem. So very important. It's the water of life for Jerusalem. Without this water, no life in Jerusalem. So symbolism there, you've got life because that pool is there, it's the water of life. And that was Doug Jacoby, some of you know, just on the left, just went past there. And in this pool, the priest would go, and with a special um, uh, receptacle, take some water from the pool, and walk back ceremonially to the temple, and then pour it, walk around the altar once, and then pour it on the altar. And on the last day of the feast, which is the day that Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty, come to me, streams of living water will come from who? those who believe in me. On that day, the priests go down to the uh, pool in Siloam, they get the water, they go back to the temple, they walk round the altar seven times, of course, And this time on the last day, and they pour the water on the altar, and then it's when the celebrations begin, and they start singing and dancing and everything else that's going on, and having, a, having a great time. So this is symbolizing a number of things. For the, the water is the water, it symbolizes the water that came from the rock when they were traveling through the desert, the the, uh, the 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 fire represents the pillar of fire that guided the Israelites through the desert, of course. The pouring out of the water was also a prayer for rain because this harvest is now coming and then we need rain in the autumn for whatever's coming next. So it's also about a prayer for rain and about uh, asking God to provide what is needed, the life for the rest of the year or for the, the, the next sort of harvest year. And it's also... God was called a messianic and eschatological purpose, which is simply this, that in pouring out this water, it's connected with the idea that Messiah is coming. One is coming that has been promised, who is going to give us the spirit, something that's prophesied in Ezekiel 36, 37, you can look at that up later. This is coming, this spirit is coming, and it's going to enliven God's people, it's going to give them life, and give them life that they can then to give to the world, So this is all connected with this festival. It's all connected with what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 7 and the pouring out of the water. And they are prefiguring the idea that God's spirit one day is going to be poured out on God's people and then through God's people poured out into the world. In other words, it's not just going to be for the Israelites. It's not just going to be for Jerusalem. It's not just going to be for a few people. This new life that Jesus is promising, this transformation of life, Is going to be available to all people. And you know it's going to come through. It's going to come through those people who believe in Jesus and then receive from him this new life, this transformed life, this spirit-filled life that then will pour out from them to whoever needs it, for whoever else is thirsty. And we live in a thirsty world, thirsty for meaning, thirsty for purpose, thirsty for healing, thirsty for hope. Hope is very fragile, easily damaged, easy to to lose sight of. But if we have that living water, if we have that spirit, we can offer hope. Maybe not my hope or your hope personally, but more hope in Christ. There is hope. This hope is available to all who want it, all who need it. Think about what happened when Jesus came. The word became flesh and made his dwelling, and that word in the original language is tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled with us so that we could see his glory. In John chapter 2, Jesus didn't just change water into decent supermarket wine. He turned the water into the best wine ever. The host of the, of, the, of the marriage said, What? I, normally you save, you give the best wine at the beginning. You save the best wine for love. You see, Jesus, when he does things, he doesn't just improve them, he transforms them, makes them the best they can be. Water, we're talking about water? Water into the best wine possible. John 3, we're told that we're born on what? Water and the Spirit, working together, transformed, being born. Again, not just being improved, not becoming more religious or something, but changed utterly, born again. In John 4, the woman at the, where is she? At the well, who needs water because she's thirsty, is promised something by Jesus. Everyone who drinks this water, the water that he provides, will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give, them, sorry, will never thirst. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water. In other words, it's available to other people, like he's talking about in John 7. And it'll, it'll give them eternal life. The water said, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. and have to keep covered here to draw water. She's not quite got the whole picture yet, but she's, she's getting there. She is transformed by this encounter with Jesus, such that she then tells the whole village. And then they come out to see Jesus. That's the streams of living water flowing to other people through Christ, in a sense, through, through her. Or what about John 5? And there's the man lying by the pool who can't get into the pool, and the healing is in the pool, in the water. He can't get to it. So what does Jesus do? He directly heals the man and says, okay, take up your mat and off you go. He's healed there. He's given hope. He's transformed, not improved. And in John 13, at the Last Supper, at the Last Supper, Jesus gets some water, pours it into a basin, and washes his disciples' feet. How are the feet here this morning? Are they clean? That <laughs> yeah, we do at Clean feet? I'm sure we've all got very clean feet, but you know, you walk around in the uh, first century and you have very dirty feet. He washes his disciples' feet. And he goes to Peter, and Peter says, What are you doing? Uh, you, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, You don't realize what I'm doing now, but Later you'll understand. And Peter says, no, 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 you'll never wash my feet. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter says, oh, okay. And he lets him wash his feet. But it's the washing of Jesus. It's the new life coming from Jesus. It's symbolic here. It's water, but it's symbolic. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You've You've got to let me wash you. You've got to let me change you. Change you. Transform you. And the inside out is not just a, an external kind of washing, is it, that he's talking about here? And so just to wrap up, and then we'll take communion together. I think the question from all of this, I've given you a bit of a history lesson, some geography, some theology. I've given you some funny words. Okay, we've got a lot going on here. But what I would like us to be considering and thinking about, and maybe talking on our way home from our pilgrimage here today, is what it means to us that we are transformed. Because in the end, all of what God did for his people, and what Jesus came to do, was to enable us to be transformed into the likeness of God's Son. Transformation. That's what Jesus is about. That's what his spirit is about. And this world does not need a bit of help. It needs transforming. I don't know about you, but before I was a Christian, I didn't need just a bit of help. I didn't need to learn just how to pray a few prayers. I needed transforming. My life was a mess. Most other people couldn't see it because I kept it kind of hidden, you know, as you do. But, and even today out there, we have friends whose lives look okay. But they're pretty messed up. Not that we're being judgmental because who are we to judge? I mean, we've got our own challenges, right? But what Jesus does, what he offers with this new life, this spirit, this living water, he offers transformation, an encounter with God. That's what's on offer. How's our transformation going? As we allow Jesus to transform us, then water can pour out of us. We don't want to be the dam holding the water back, right? Let's not be damming up the spirit of Christ pouring out from us. We've got to let it flow. We've got to let it out. That starts with us enabling or allowing, I should say, allowing and desiring Jesus to transform us. And then it could flow. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. There's a big harvest. It's just that the workers are few. Or perhaps the workers have got a dam there. they're They're not letting the water flow. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And to the woman or to the disciples around the encounter with the woman in John 4, Jesus said, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Transformation is available. What does it mean to you to have a transformed life? Uh, and maybe you don't know. And that's okay. I, I, I do not pour judgment on that. I, if we don't know, we don't know. But let's find out. Let's find out what it means to have a transformed life. That new, new, new life. Jesus at that last supper, offered bread, offered the fruit of the vine, the cup of the new covenant, which was symbolizing his body and his blood, because he was to go to the cross, so that then God would raise him from the dead and transform his dead body to a new body, a new life in in his old body, but a new life, which is the kind of thing that's going to happen to us. And how did this new life come to us? They came to Jesus on the cross and found that he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. There are some medical reasons why water comes out, but I think it's rather interesting that that's what happens, and it's recorded by John. Blood and water. Why the water? Maybe it's symbolizing this spirit that's to be poured out soon after this in Acts chapter 2. The spirit of new life. The spirit that gives us hope. The spirit that transforms us. The spirit that gives us the capacity to allow God's spirit to pour through us to the world around us. The blood going to the cross released the blood and the water. Jesus' blood and water poured out in death gives you and me life. The Lord's Supper that we're about to take celebrates this new life. So let's celebrate. Maybe you want to read Deuteronomy. Maybe you want to dance for a while. I, I, I don't mind, whatever. But we come here to celebrate the harvest, a harvest given to us by God's grace A harvest that says there is hope. A harvest that says this isn't only for you and me in this room. It's for the world.